1: Welcome to What You Missed this week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Foo, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg TV. It's called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, as Potstock snapped a three-day losing streak, we spoke with Kronos chairman and CEO Michael Gorenstein about his company's plan to stand out in an increasingly crowded field for marijuana. Michael told us about their plan to brand their recreational marijuana and how optimistic he was about global markets opening up for the product.
2: We see things moving really rapidly, and, and it accelerates. There's a tailwind behind things. So, you know, we see medical markets open up and as people and governments become more and more comfortable with the idea of of cannabis being legalized we see that shift start moving towards recreational so you know uh, we're now on five continents all medical except canada moving recreational but we do see that transition continuing to move uh, both with new countries coming online and with uh, deregulation
1: michael we know there's a huge opportunity but the question is who is going to stand out and really have a product that can capture market share and have margin. You recently launched a, a, a recreational brand of cannabis called Spinach, uh, and I'm curious why and what is your thinking as approach to branding going into this market?
2: Sure so I think the first thing there's a lot of restrictions heavy restrictions on what you're able to do and, and how you're able to market and you've seen a lot of the branding you know we do have another brand Cove which is targeted to more of a, a premium high-end sort of relaxing reserved crowd uh, you have to look and understand who your consumer is and and ultimately we are selling a, a product that's about uh, recreation it's about having a good time with with friends and and we thought spinach was a great and humorous way to do that. I think it's a really strong position, and and also there's some people that still have a lot of fear. And the point we're making is this is this is a you know happy green plant just like spinach. <laughs> uh, Michael, one thing that someone brought up to me yesterday, particularly for folks who are trying to expand in the U.S., is this issue of protecting
3: uh, your effectively your intellectual property. And when you're coming into a market like the U.S. that doesn't really have any federal framework for dealing with marijuana, whether it's recreational or medical, how are you? actually protecting your intellectual property to make sure that things like spinach don't just get co-opted by a competitor?
2: Well you can you can just simply file the trademark in in the US and actually get full IP protection so that that's not an issue you know really the when we thought about starting and and, you know building Kronos Group we came from the US moved to Canada and saw it as an opportunity to be in a federally legal environment actually develop that IP and really what's you know the scalable part of a company is the IP and that IP can move everywhere. So, you know, we have uh, we have the ability to to register the trademarks, the patents. Uh, we're not conducting any business illegally, but you're able to get that extension of, of the IP protection. I want to get how you educate the market, how you an, uh, educate analysts, because you've been beset by some naysayers, particularly the short sellers, buyers out there, the, the likes of Citron have looked at your company and said, look, I'm a bit worried about this. How do you focus on how you scale and what fundamentals should be looked at? So there's a lot of different factors, and I, I think it, it's not a, a five-minute conversation. A lot of it is bring people into the facilities, understanding, you know, what you're working on, what the differentiation is, uh, you know, there is a thought that can this just be like a normal crop you grow in a field? What's the difference? but being able to show the differentiation on, on taste, on flavor, psychoactive effects, you know, there are a lot of differentiators as you start getting into the companies. For us, one of the big ones is the partnership we, uh, we recently announced with Ginkgo, mm. and, and that's about being able to produce cultured cannabinoids. So when you hear people say, well, you know, explain to me, isn't it just growing a crop? You know, what we're actually doing and what we've been working on for quite some time is sequencing the, the DNA and really mapping out the cannabis genome and, and being able to differentiate not just in being able to produce cannabinoids uh, cheaper and at a higher purity than competitors but being able to produce some of the more rare cannabinoids like mm-hmm. THCV which allows us to create products with appetite suppressant you know, properties which we think is, is a, a big driver and so you yep. know, there's a lot of initiatives and, and things like that that are important to you know, to bring to light.
1: Yeah, Michael tell us a little bit more about that. How much can you get the cost uh, of cannabinoids down through the synthetic creation of them and when does that scale? When will you actually be able to, uh, the, from the fruits of this investment, really ramp that up?
2: We don't have an exact number and we haven't really given guidance on where we, where we ultimately think that that price per kilo can can get. There was certainly enough confidence on, on Ginkgo's part that they were willing to set it that in order for that equity release, in order for the hundred million dollars in shares to actually be released and for them to earn it, they would be producing for less than a thousand a kilo. So we sort of set that as the, uh, as, as kind of the, the you know floor. We've got to be able to, we have to be able to show that we can get below that pricing, which is a fraction of what you could produce today in terms of cost. And the amount of automation is really what attracted us. The amount of data, the size of the the metagenomic library, they're able to print so many more you know, base pairs of DNA and do so many more strain tests that we see this accelerating uh, really faster than we think other companies or technologies would be able to Mm -hmm. develop the same cultured cannabinoids.
1: Michael, have any major consumer companies in North America or elsewhere reached out to you in terms of an investment or JV or anything like that?
2: Well, you know, it's uh, cannabis is interesting. You you look at a lot of these major consumer uh, companies and when you're looking for growth for you know some category other than by population, you know the the most obvious uh, answer right now is cannabis. And I think when you look across for those companies, that's not just beverages. That's certainly a big category. But there's uh, infused food. There's vaporizers, uh, topicals. Uh, you've got the pharmaceutical products, health and wellness. So. You know, I think it's a, it's a huge opportunity, uh, and I think there are a lot of companies that are increasingly viewing this as uh, something they want to be more offensive about than just defensive.
1: So is that a yes or no? <laughs> uh,
2: you know, we, we as a policy don't speculate on uh, or, or discuss any anything before it's uh, gone in terms of partnerships here, i
1: Then we switch gears to the U.N. General Assembly, which took place this week in New York. The headline of last year's meeting of world leaders was North Korea. This year, President Trump tried out a good cop, bad cop routine with Iran. The president started off Tuesday morning with a tweet complimenting Hassan Rouhani as a, quote, absolutely lovely man, and left the door open to meeting with the Iranian president in the future. His speech at the UN General Assembly struck a different tone. President Trump criticized Iranian leaders for, quote, spreading mayhem and called on the rest of the world to isolate the country. So we spoke with Barbara Slavin, director of the Future of Iran initiative at the Atlantic Council about President Trump versus Iran. We started off by asking Barbara if she thought Rouhani was interested in meeting
4: with Trump. In a word, no. <laughs> in fact, Rouhani, who spoke uh, just about an hour ago, uh, basically said Iran doesn't do photo op diplomacy, which was a kind of... Backhanded slap at uh, Trump for his meetings with Kim Jong Un in Singapore. Um, You know, Iran has a has a basic demand that the United States return to the uh, 2015 nuclear deal that it negotiated with the United States and other countries. And of course, Trump pulled out of that uh, in May. So until and unless the United States returns to this agreement, uh, Iran isn't going to sit down with him.
2: Meanwhile, to add to the flood of voices from leaders, Macron of France is saying he hopes to continue discussions in terms of the Iran deal with the U.S. I mean, there is still hope that the U.S. will come back to the fold in some way. I mean, how much longer can Iran cope with the level of sanctions with the effect that it's already having on the economy?
4: Yeah, I think that, you know, I think Iran is going to hang tough on this. Um, You know, they, they understand that President Trump is in some political difficulty at home, that we're about to have elections that could flip at least one house of the Congress. And, you know, they've seen this movie before. It's extremely painful for them, but they also have learned over... 40 years, how to cope with a variety of different types of sanctions. We should point out that uh, just last night, the P4 plus one, that's Britain, France, Germany, China, Russia, and Germany, affirmed their support for the nuclear deal and said that they uh, had come up with some sort of special payment vehicle, some uh, special mechanism that would allow trade uh, to continue with Iran to circumvent the sanctions that are, are coming back in place. Uh now I think a lot of this is just bravado. We've seen most major multinationals leave Iran. The Iranian currency has taken a tremendous beating. Uh but if Iran can continue to sell about a million barrels of oil a day and remember the price of oil is going up. And yes. why is it going up? Because of the Iran sanctions. Mm-hmm. Yes, oh, So oh, the they irony. can sell less and they can still, you know, manage to uh, manage to survive. Um, Barbara, think- it, it will be tough. It will be tough. I like what you said about how Iran has certainly noticed that the president is on some political dire straits here or or he's facing trouble at home. And obviously Iran could just wait out his presidency. Is there anything that the country, the, the regime is doing behind the scenes to try to shore up bipartisan support in Washington for itself? Well, you know, it could do a lot more. And I just wrote a piece for uh, that's on the Atlantic Council website at AtlanticCouncil.org. It's entitled, Iran Plays Who's the Rogue Now at the United Nations. And one of the things I said is that, you know, uh, I mean, a political shift on Capitol Hill by itself will not change US policy on Iran, Uh, but there's a lot that Iran could do. It could stop uh, using slogans like death to America and death to Israel at government rallies, which frankly nobody in the country believes in anymore, and it just makes people here angry. It could also work harder to end a number of regional conflicts that it's involved in, in in Yemen and Syria, for example. And it could have a better human rights record. It could let go some of the Americans and the dual nationals and other political prisoners that... that holding yeah. uh, this would do a lot to improve its image and and give it some uh, bicartisan support in in the US Congress that it hasn't really had in 40 years
0: the countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter economic forum powered by Bloomberg join heads of state
1: I have a piece out in the latest issue of Business Week about why crypto and cannabis are the perfect post-crisis bubbles. After the 2008 crash, investors embraced the gospel of boring, index, rebalance, diversify, rebalance again. But two recent phenomenons, Bitcoin and pot stocks, both share a similar rebellious anti-establishment bent. I interviewed Peter Atwater, president of Financial Insights, who I spoke with for the article about what this says about the mood of the market. And I asked why so many people these days have started embracing marijuana legalization.
3: The whole cannabis marijuana movement, if you look from a historical perspective, has ties to periods of weak social mood. And so, to me, there are lots of similarities with what we're seeing with cannabis in 2018 resonate and rhyme with the late 60s. And you're seeing it politically, you're seeing it socially, economically, many of the same underlying mood issues.
1: And we've seen it, it's been rising for a while, support for cannabis legalization, but really in the post-crisis era, it's absolutely taken off like a rocket.
3: Yeah, so you end up after the banking crisis with people angry at the banks. Right. But there's a broader issue to that, which is they were angry at the establishment. Mm-hmm. And so if I look at the companies that have been most successful since the banking crisis, they all have some connection to opposition to the establishment, whether it's Uber, Airbnb, Tesla, Amazon. And, you know, you put Bitcoin and cannabis right at the tail end when people are in a very uh, enthusiastic capable of thinking abstractly. And
1: I haven't thought about that before with regards to Tesla. That's in that same category as sort of an anti-establishment. You see its uh, believers, very evangelical about the yeah. company, very similar to uh, Bitcoin. Now let's talk about the market specifically, because we've just seen this incredible surge in recent weeks and months for the cannabis stocks. How do bubbles form? Why Some of these companies had been public yeah. for a while. So if you go back two months ago, a lot of these were pretty sleepy companies out there And then the next day, people can't get enough of them.
3: So bubbles are something that only happen at peaks in confidence. Mm. So they're a manifestation of our ability to think abstractly. And there are a couple of elements to it. I I always think of it as sort of the seed in the soil. So you have people who are excited about innovation, the future, and are thrilled to extrapolate wildly about what could be. And the epitome of that to me was was Bitcoin, because there was no, nobody could put a spreadsheet together on Bitcoin. And I think that cannabis is another one of those what could be Wild West scenarios.
1: Do we, is there an inherent limitation, though, to the cannabis boom? Because we can look at, say, the market cap of a Constellation brand, yeah. highly successful liquor company. It's only really a $40 billion company. It's not Facebook territory. It's not Amazon territory. So even when you go to the really big liquor companies, There is sort of a limit to where your imagination can go.
3: It is. And I think that's actually one of the things that severely limits the potential of the cannabis bubble versus a Bitcoin, where you couldn't have—there were no comparables. There were no limits to what it could be. To your point, you've got uh, tobacco companies, you've got alcohol companies, and you have the likely intervention of government. If this grows, they're going to want to impose taxes on it just like they did when they repealed Prohibition.
1: Now, it's funny you mention Prohibition. That is another thing that where it was, alcohol was illegal officially throughout the entire Roaring Twenties, which we think of as this big party time in America, no alcohol. And then Prohibition was only repealed in 1933, the very depth of the Great Depression.
3: So, again, a a contradiction that only comes to the fore when mood falls. So not, not necessarily in the same anti-establishment, but vices. Right. You know, when, when mood is low, anything goes behaviorally. And so you'll start to see more vice-related activity that people are not, not in opposition to. And to the extent that you can monetize that, so much the better.
1: Now, you talk about bubbles being associated with a peak in confidence, but one thing that seems to characterize the market these days is that if you look at the overall market, It's hard to argue that we're in an overall bubble. Like maybe the market is rich by historical standards, but it doesn't seem like people are buying everything hand over fist without any sort of sense of discrimination. It it feels like they're localized. So whether it was crypto last year, Mm -hmm. cannabis uh, this year, maybe a few others. What do you make of that, that they sort of like pop up here and there, but haven't really extended to
3: everything? So I think it also speaks to this issue of what mood do we really have? and you know in the 1990s there was an underlying very positive mood so we bought everything even right. even the most wild crazy things we bought this one you have underneath the surface a fair amount of anger and hostility that is still out there you see it particularly in the political environment yeah and so i think that limits how enthusiastic we're going to be but what's so interesting about both Bitcoin and cannabis is there's a fear element to it. Yeah. So I'm using cannabis for anxiety, for depression, for you know, escape what's going on around me. Um, and I think that's, a, that's an important element of the, the things that we are attracted to, these, these pockets.
1: Lastly, does it seem weird to you that we are fairly close to all-time highs in the market right now? And yet, across a range of measures, it doesn't feel like a happy time. People are approved of, of the economy, but people are pretty negative on a lot of legacy institutions. Is this going to resolve in some way, or can that disparity last for a while?
3: So I don't think it it is sustainable. Yeah. I think that the, the underlying uh, irritability that that you see that, you know, the the economic statistics would say all is rosy, but you go to talk to people and it's a very different impression on Main Street. And I think that the danger is that we have two very, um, discontinuous groups. We have a group of policymakers of financial elite who are extremely confident and who are acting in exactly the way you would expect based on, you know, mood being high. At the same time, Main Street isn't, isn't participating in this. And that, that divide is one of the things that I think still has to resolve itself.
1: And that's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. And tune in every weekday to our Daily Market Close show from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.